Wow, thank you, Charlotte, for such an amazing sharing. And thank you, uh, give thanks to the, uh, the Say Out team, the whole team, every one of you. You have done awesome things for God, which is of eternal value. And I hope that it's not just uh, once a year that you will be putting so much effort in, in, in witnessing God, but every day in your life in Vancouver or anywhere else, that you can do the same thing and try to attempt to do great things for God. So I'm so glad here today to resume the series on the seven signs in the Gospel of John. But before I begin, uh, could you please remind me of the previous four signs, please? Without looking at the notes. Well, the first one, okay, I give you mercy. The first one is turning water into wine in a wedding in Cana. Yes. And the second sign is clearing the temple in Jerusalem. And the third sign is healing the son of the royal official in Cana again. And the fourth sign is that Jesus healed the lame man on what day? Sabbath. Very good. In Jerusalem again. If you remember at the end of the fourth sign, when Jesus said, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I am too working. The Jewish leaders then became determined to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And it is under this tension-filled circumstance that we're moving to chapter 6, the sign of feeding 5,000. Well, when we read the Bible, especially the narrative of Jesus, we have to ask, always ask this very important question. And that is, why Jesus did such thing at such time, in such place, to such people? We need to ask the why about the what, when, where, how, and who involved in the narrative. Jesus never did random acts. His words and his deeds in the Bible all carry theological and practical meanings. This is a very special meaning in the first time when Jesus used a stone jar for the wine. In, the, in Cana, in the first miracle in the wedding, there is special meaning that Jesus healed the royal official's son 15 miles away from the sick boy. There is special meaning that Jesus healed the lame man at Sabbath. See, there, there are also always special meanings of what Jesus did. When we try to understand the signs, we need to pay attention to all the details that make up the narrative. The background of the signs are the keys to unlock God's revelation. From this angle, we are moving to the fifth sign, feeding 5,000. What kind of background John presented to his readers? Where did it take place? Why bread and fish? Was it just a random choice of what's available there? Or Maybe bread and fish carry special theological meaning. So now, let's pay attention 
on this passage as Michael is going to read and unfold the word of God to us. It is in John chapter 6, verse 1 to 15. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15 reads, Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There is plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were, dis- who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Let us all pray together. Spirit of the living God, we give thanks to you that you have inspired uh, Apostle John to accurately record this uh, miracle sign. We ask the same spirit of yours today that would lead us into the reality of this teaching like never before. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what's unique of the sign of feeding 5,000 is that it is recorded in all four Gospels in the Bible. From this perspective, only Jesus walking on water and the passion narrative can compare. So you can get a sense, this is a very crucial sign. And in terms of location, John mentioned that it, is, it happened in a mountainside. On the other hand, the other three Gospels call it a remote place or desert place or even wilderness. Or whether it's mountainside or wilderness does not result in any contradiction because the majority of mountainside in Israel are wilderness in Jesus' time. And the mountainside along the coast of Sea of Galilee looks something like this. It's just pretty rough and, and, and see, even nowadays, there's nothing there. Uh, and uh, this is another picture of it. You see, it's uh, a lot of terrains and, and uh, rocks. And this is Capernaum. And this is Sea of Galilee. So this is probably, this is a mountain looking downward. So you can see this is approximately... Uh, where uh, or, or, or you know Jesus did this miracle in a similar uh, place. So in terms and in terms of time, John said in verse four. Oops, yes, 
that it is around the Passover festival. But this is the second Passover since Jesus' ministry started. The first Passover was when Jesus cleared the temple in Jerusalem. It is the second sign. And this is the, this is the fifth sign. And this is the second Passover. And at the third Passover, it is when Jesus being crucified. So in this second Passover in the Gospel, Jesus chose this occasion to perform this feeding miracle. Jesus has, has had many opportunities to do this miracle, to feed a group of people, but he chose Passover. In order to understand the significance of Jesus choosing Passover as the occasion to feed 5,000, let us first get an understanding of how important festivals are for Jews in Jesus' time. Festivals, no matter if it's Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacle, have two main purposes in Jewish tradition. So these two purposes are first, remember, and second, hope. To remember is to look back into history and be reminded of God's almighty deeds in the history of Israel, including God's calling, saving, entering into covenant, forgiving, and of course, blessing. And to hope is to hope that God will do the same to every generation of Israelites, just as what God has done for their ancestors. And in every Passover, Jews would remember how God had delivered their ancestors from the Pharaoh's regime. God had led millions of Israelites safely out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery, and into the promised land flowing with milk and honey. The term Passover carries two meanings. First, it refers to the last of the ten plagues, when God sends the destroying angels to go through the land of Egypt to strike down all firstborn sons. In order to avoid being killed, Israelites must do what God told them to, which is to slaughter the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. Then the destroying angel will pass over the household, sparing the life of the firstborn. This is the origin of Passover. But there's also a second meaning to Passover. When Moses led the Israelites to the edge of the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his soldiers were pursuing them from behind. God miraculously parted the Red Sea, allowing Moses to lead the million Israelites to pass over the sea, reaching the Sinai Peninsula. With this background in play, the Jews in Jesus' time remember how God raised Moses to save Israelites out of the slavery in Egypt, and how God unceasingly provided them with food in manna during the whole wilderness wandering. Through this remembrance of God's deliverance and provision, Jews had an eager anticipation of similar deliverance and provision every year during Passover. But this time, it is a deliverance not from slavery in Egypt, 
but from the Roman tyranny. Also, such anticipation was based on a promise that God made to Israel that he would one day raise a prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. So since Deuteronomy, the Israelites had long anticipated this prophet to come to them. And this anticipation is especially strong during Passover. As a result, under the tyranny of uh, the Roman regime, Passover is not only a time of heightened patriotism, it's also a time of extreme political tension and sensitivity. Therefore, it was Jesus' intention to specifically chose, uh, choose Passover, a festival based on Exodus tradition, to perform this feeding sign. In this miraculous sign, you can find many elements that resembled Exodus. First, both happen in wilderness. Second, bread and fish also remind Jews of what their ancestors ate during the wilderness wandering. During the 40 years of wilderness wandering, God provided the Israelites manna and quails to eat. Well, it's not hard to relate manna with bread, but quails with fish? That's a bit odd, isn't it? Quails don't seem to have much to do with fish. Well, one is a poultry and the other is a seafood. They are listed in different categories in Chinese restaurants' menu. Well, let's, let's take a look at what the Bible says first, not the menu. Says. In, in the book of uh, Numbers, chapter 11, it says, Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove the quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits, deep all around the camp. 32, it says, All that day and night and all the next day the people went out and gathered quail. Now let's pay attention that the quails came from the sea. In some ancient manuscripts, it was found that the first reaction of the Israelites when seeing the quail coming from the sky and they call it flying fish. It is really an amphibious hybrid. You know, it's pretty good that we can buy at a poultry cost and charge customers a seafood price. But as humorous as it sounds, this is actually what some of the ancient texts call it, flying fish. With this specific tradition in mind, bread and fish used in Jesus' sign were not by random choice but with specific reference to show that Jesus is the long-awaited prophet. The prophet that each and every Passover anticipates. The prophet who comes to bring deliverance and provision to God's people. Jesus is the one. Well, another similarity between the Exodus tradition and Jesus' sign of feeding 5,000 is the reaction of the crowd. The most prominent reaction of the Israelites to Moses and God is not of thanksgiving, but of 
grumbling. Exodus 16, it says, Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. And Moses said, Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Well, in John's Gospel, the crowd following Jesus was also a grumbling crowd. The Gospel says, all the Jews there began to grumble at Jesus. The word grumble is the exact same word in John as the word uh, the Israelites used to Moses and God in Exodus. Therefore, I hope by now, you would get the picture of how this fifth sign of Jesus is being set up uh, on the Exodus tradition. And the purpose for this is to show that Jesus is the prophet that God's people had long been anticipating since Moses. Well, even though Jesus is long-awaited prophet that Jews had been eagerly anticipating, his mission, though, was far from meeting such anticipation. This discrepancy can be understood by looking at what the crowd, happened to the crowd when Jesus had fed them, had fed the 5,000 of them, and how Jesus has explained his action. Let's take a look of another passage on the same chapter, John 6, 25-35. I'm going to read it to you. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs. I performed well, the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to, to do to, that the works of God require? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be hungry. Thirsty. But this passage gives us the reaction of the crowd after being fed with the bread and fish. There are three levels of the reaction. First, they demanded Jesus to do this miracle one more time. Then they would consider if Jesus is trustworthy. They said in verse 30, So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Well, the demand was simply ridiculous. 
Didn't they just witness Jesus' sign of feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? Now they have filled their stomach and they dare to ask Jesus, What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? This crowd saw what Jesus did and they decided to go against what they have seen and eaten. And they still did not want to believe in Jesus. Worse, they put the blame on Jesus for their disbelief. If Jesus does not perform another miracle, they will not believe in Jesus. And the thought is on Jesus. This crowd's reaction represents human sin. Our society and our culture do not like to believe in Lord Jesus. But they always put the blame back to Him. Because what Jesus has taught does not serve their desire. They would say Jesus is outdated. Christianity is outdated. Salvation by a Savior has become irrelevant. You know, the advancements, advancements of, of technology has given humans an ego as big as the universe. Very soon you will be able to download an app called Salvation DIY, where you can do in-app purchase for enough credits to atone your own sins. You know, an atheistic society aims at denying judgment by getting rid of the judge. Back to John 6. The crowd then challenged Jesus using well, OT, Old Testament history. And they say, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave the bread from heaven to eat. Well, here the crowd quoted from Psalm 78 to challenge Jesus. But they had an error in their Bible exposition. They, they thought the he in this verse refers to Moses. But if you look at the context of the whole Psalm 78, the he in fact refers to God, Yahweh. They misquote the Bible out of their sinful desire to judge the trustworthiness of Jesus. This crowd wanted more signs from Jesus, not because their faith is weak that they require more revelation, but because they wanted Jesus to satisfy their earthly needs. That's why Jesus said in the beginning, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaf and had your fill. This crowd is not true followers of Jesus. They did not care about the truth. They did not care about relationship with God. All they care about was to satisfy their own desire. They only want signs, but not destination, which all signs point to. They just need food for their physical needs, but ignoring their need for eternal life. They wanted God's miracle, but they care less about God himself. So this is the crowd's first reaction. The second reaction of the crowd is that they wanted to make Jesus a king by force. The scripture says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There is a contra contradiction in this verse. This contradiction is found between make him king and by force. 
A king is a figure of absolute authority. Attitudes towards a king can only be of obedience, loyalty, and submission. On the contrary, the phrase by force applies to mostly to slaves and prisoners. And slaves and prisoners are required to be obedient, loyal, and submissive. Therefore, it's very contradicting when you put make him king and by force together. Well, but this contradiction clearly showed us what this hypocritical crowd was contemplating. Although this crowd called Jesus the king by mouth, they intended to control him and seize him as their slave. The Greek word for by force has the meaning of threatening. The Messiah this crowd looked for was someone whom they could control and manipulate. They wanted a savior that will become their slave to undertake their will, help them to overthrow the Roman regime, and then provide them with free lunch and dinner every day. They wanted a Lord to make sure their will be done. When Jesus denied the threat and rejected to perform another sign, what was the crowd's reaction? The scripture tells us. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So, like father, like son, the crowd is just like their ancestors. They grumble. But grumbling was an action that characterized the sinfulness of the Israelites in the wilderness during the Exodus. They frequently grumbled against Moses and against God. They, they grumbled against God for leading them out of Egypt. Many times they wanted to go back to Egypt and become slaves again. Also, they rejected God's leadership to enter into the promised land. In short, they grumbled and complained all the time. But later on, the Bible equates grumbling with another serious sin, which is testing God. Psalm 78 recalls the sins of this group of Israelites, saying, But they continue to sin against Him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they crave. They spoke against God, which also equates to they grumble against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? We need to know that even the word manna reflects the grumbling nature of the Israelites. When God first gave them manna from the sky, the scripture says, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? But the phrase, What is it? is one word in original Hebrew, and the word is manu, which became manna eventually. So the word manna actually means, What is it? No thanksgiving, only grumbling. And it is the beginning of testing God. This attitude is one that denies that God is trustworthy. Then, this grumbling, complaining attitude would eventually lead to idolatry. 
This is exactly what happened to the Exodus Israelites. This is exactly what happened to the crowd in Jesus' time. Facing such an unappreciative crowd, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, let's take a look at the last passage of today, which is from verse 47 to 58, and I'll read it to you. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The Jews wanted a leader like Moses who can ensure their food supply. But Jesus told them, that he is above Moses. He is more important than manna. Jesus said that he is the living bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is bigger than Moses, more important than manna, because only Jesus is the bread of life. I think I've mentioned before that there's a few words of Greek uh, that means life. The two words used mainly in the Gospel are first is bios, which means physical and earthly life. And the other, anybody remember? It's the Zoe. Yeah, it's the name Zoe. Yeah. And it means eternal life. So when Jesus said that he is the bread of life, guess which life that Jesus was referring to? This Zoe, eternal life. And the bread that God gave to Israelites through Moses, the manna, was the bread for Bios life physical life. That's why Jesus said, your ancestors ate manna, but yet died. Well, manna simply maintained their physical earthly life, but had no effect on their soe eternal life. So what Jesus meant was that never just fix your sight on earthly bread that you might miss the chance to receive the imperishable bread of life in the form of away eternal life. From that, Jesus said the most difficult saying in this passage. He said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Wow. Isn't it a little gross? Eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, isn't it cannibalism? 
Well, in order to understand what Jesus really meant, we need to understand what he, what did eating flesh and drinking blood mean in the Old Testament. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, flesh and blood together means life. The Old Testament prohibited drinking blood because it considered life to be in the blood. Leviticus chapter 17 says, Because the life of every creature is, is blood, that is why I have said to the Israelites, You must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is, is blood. Well, from this perspective, Jesus clearly did not ask us to interpret his saying, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, on a strictly literal level. No. What Jesus meant was that we are to receive eternal life, then we need to let his life into our lives. Through our repentance, our opening up our hearts, and our recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord, we let Christ enter into our lives. By doing that, we receive not the manna, which has no effect on eternal life, but the soul life that comes from the very divine nature of the Son of God, Jesus. After Jesus saying all this, the crowd was still unsatisfied because no more free lunch is served. Their hearts were still hardened. And they considered Jesus saying too harsh. They then decided to leave Jesus. At first there were 5,000 men or as many as 20,000 people including women and children. Now everyone is gone except the 12 disciples staying with Jesus. The scripture goes on to say, You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of soe life, eternal life. The more explicit or clearer the revelation is, the more devastating the consequence of rejecting it. The crowd wanted God's sign, but not God. They wanted manna for their earthly life instead of the bread of eternal life in Jesus. You know, we all have to face the same choices. Do we truly follow Jesus as king? Or we in fact, subtly, maybe, want him to be our slave? Do we listen to him more? Or do we want him to listen to us more? Do you serve him according to his will? Or do you want him to serve you according to your desire? Brothers and sisters, Jesus, just like the Passover lamb, gave us his life and he shed his blood. For what? Well, he did that so that the destroying angels the curse and judgment will pass over us. Jesus said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood so that you will have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, let him come into your life. Let him take control of your life. Let him be the God and the King of your life. 
May you, may you all become a reflection of His will. And that may His will be done among us and within us. May we all say to Jesus what Peter said. Lord, to whom? Oops, let me go back. May we all, that's okay. May we all say to Jesus, just like what Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have come, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let us all pray together. Holy Father, Almighty, loving and faithful God, we are in debt to you that you sent the Son to be our Passover Lamb, that judgment and death was laid upon Him instead of us. We give thanks to you for His flesh and blood. God, help us to really see Jesus as our King, that we will respond to His loving grace with absolute loyalty and obedience. Help us to be thankful to you that under no circumstance may we put you to test. As you are always faithful, always loving and always caring. Thank you, God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.